not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog Unpickled and in the books that I write. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today I'm holding space for Victoria Vanstone. She writes the blog Drunk Mummy Sober Mommy, and she has a new podcast coming out, Sober Awkward, and she joins me from Australia. Hi, Victoria. It's great to talk with you. Hi, Dean. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a good pleasure to talk to you. It's really, really neat when we can connect from around the globe and I love how we just get to know each other's stories. And you've got a lot of humor in your story and you're very down to earth. I'm so excited that the listeners of this show are going to get to know you. I'm excited too. (laughs) I have spent the morning reading your blog. I've listened to your new podcast, which is great. Highly recommend it. Sober Awkward. I love the title. (laughs) (laughs) It is all about being awkward a little bit sometimes though, isn't it? We have to admit... (laughs) until so awkward until it feels normal and then it's exactly yes our (laughs) motto is to uh, feel the awkward and do it anyway so it's a positive (laughs) message I love it well Victoria I'm going to turn the mic over to you tell us about yourself and tell us your story so my name's Victoria Vanstone I'm 44 I'm originally from the UK a small village just outside Reading a sleepy little village within a stumbling distance of lots of cosy pubs. I have three very lovable yet uncontrollable children that are two, five and nine. I have a very patient husband and a somewhat confused dog who usually just sits in her basket wondering what all the noise is about. I love pottery, I love boxing and my favourite thing to do would be to relax in a hammock with a good bit of reggae in the distance. It used to be with a cold beer but obviously now it's with a cup of tea. I write the blog Drunk Mummy, Sober Mummy. My alcohol story is is quite normal. It's about a normal style of drinking, a very sociable style of drinking. My first memories of booze were kicking around those little bags that used to fill up wine boxes. I remember smelling the fumes and wondering why I wasn't allowed to have it and questioning it to my parents. I remember smelling it, pushing the the black button on the top and really inhaling all those fumes and thinking that I wanted it. I guess it was a sort of whimsical whiff of my future. I'm from a loving home with parents that are kind and they were always generous hosts. The party was always at our house. I loved helping set up I watched in the corner of the room from my little beanbag as people sipped on glamorous cocktails. I just loved watching people let loose. I couldn't believe that just consuming this glass full of liquid made them act so strangely. It interested me how people went from being so glamorous to so messy so quickly and how bodies went from being straight to all floppy the more they drank. 
It seemed to make people happy drinking, dancing and laughing harder. I must say I was very, very interested from a very young age. I was always surrounded by booze. It was always in the house, sticking out of a wine bucket or piled up in the garage. I always had a real interest in it because I saw that it made people happy. I always saw the positive side of drinking, now I think about it. I never saw the dark side. I was usually tucked up in bed with my cabbage patch doll by the time a guest was vomiting in the punch bowl. So I never really got to see the bad side of alcohol the late night calamity that drinking caused. I just absorbed the good bits from a really, really young age. So from about five onwards, I just remember wanting to be part of this sort of cheerful pandemonium. I foolishly presumed I had to be a drinker to be a good member of my family. Uh, I don't know why I thought that. It's just because it was just around me and I just wanted to be accepted, I guess. I had three older siblings and I had to sort of watch them rebel and I just wanted to be like them. And I had to get my drinking pants on pretty quick if I was going to be part of the party. My brothers and sisters were real teachers for me, I guess. They didn't realise that I was sitting back absorbing everything that they were doing, the tricks of the trade, how to buy booze, how to steal it from the garage and all these other things. So at 12... I started to have sips of my dad's beer when he wasn't looking. As soon as they were driving out of the the drive, I was sort of in the garage taking swigs out of bottles um, and necking them really quickly. My drinking was never slow. It was never an appreciation of a a fine vintage. It was more like get it down your neck as quickly as possible. So I was always pouring it down my throat until I vomited. That was kind of my aim. I was wanted to be the one falling over the one that that was the kind of drinking champion I guess I loved how the liquid sort of spread through my body and it made me feel free at that age I loved that it felt rebellious and naughty and I could be the ringleader and get all my little mates as wasted as me it became my way of making friends I decided the best way for me to make friends was to get them drinking too So each weekend became about getting secretly drunk, getting myself into a vodka coma in a farmer's field because I thought it made me funny and cool. As you can probably tell, my drinking attitude was a little bit mixed up from a very young age. I didn't know that it was in any way toxic for me. My drinking progressed, of course, as a teenager. I found it took the edges off a little bit. It softened my world when I was under the influence. It was easier to talk to boys. I thought I was more entertaining and I thought being the best drinker in town made me more likeable because I had grown up in a house full of entertainers. I thought I was doing a good job at fulfilling my role. Then something happened at school. I'd made some wonderful friends and one day I turned up at school and they never spoke to me again. And I went from being the most popular girl in school, which at that age is so important to being someone who was sat in the cafeteria on her own. And I had to continue until my exams finished. And for me, I know it's not the biggest trauma that any one child has ever been to, but I guess trauma is relative. And for me, it was huge. It really broke my heart. Um, So from that point on, I think I did actually have a little hole in my heart. A void, I guess. I decided that the only way to fill that was with alcohol. I wasn't present in that thought. It's just how it progressed. So throughout my teens, I went a bit off the rails, pretty much from that point onwards. The void meant I began to act out. 
I took drugs. I didn't take care of myself. I love it in the Glennon Doyle book when she talks about abandoning herself because that's exactly what I did. I forgot that I mattered. And the only thing that was important to me was keeping my friends. So I made new friends and I wanted them to stay. I never wanted them to leave me like those girls at school. And the only way I knew how to keep people was to be a really good drinking buddy. So that's what I became, a reliable booze friend. This carried on until I was 18. I managed to keep most of my behaviour hidden. When I moved out of home, I headed to university. My intoxication escalated. I don't think I went to one lecture. I just sat in my room smoking weed, drinking and trying to be the life and soul of every party. I drank and smoked and slept. A typical student, I guess. (laughs) One of the only times anyone has pulled me up on my drinking was once at university. I'd been there for about three months and a girl came up to me and said, hello. I said, oh, hi, I'm Vicky. She said, oh, you're Vicky that takes loads of drugs and drinks till you fall over. Wow, I thought, this is the first time someone has actually told me what I was doing was not okay. I left university the next day. I didn't finish my course. I realised that maybe I was going a little bit off the rails. So I tried to do better. I didn't want that reputation at all. It didn't last. I moved to the seaside to a town called Brighton, a typical party town. And the party moved from one location to the next. It followed me like a bad smell, I guess. I mean, it was just one one place for another, one addiction to the next addiction. I made good friends and partied hard. It was a time growing up in the 90s, there was a bit of a ladette culture going on. It was girls drinking the men under the table. It was a perfect culture for me to hide my drinking habit within. My drinking and drug taking reached a peak when I overdosed on ecstasy. I'd been out with a mate, we had some money from somewhere, which we never had any money, and we bought some drugs, meaning to share them. And we didn't, we ended up taking the whole lot. It was a particularly heavy night and I don't really remember much. But the next morning I remember sitting watching Sesame Street as I tried to come down off the drugs and having a huge wave of anxiety spread all over my body. A sinister force infiltrated my come down and I changed. I couldn't leave the house that day. And in fact, I felt like I was going mad. I stayed in that frame of mind for about a year, full of fear. Everything made me scared, even breathing. It was terrible. It was the first time doing, putting things inside my body had made me really unwell. I mean, I'd had hangovers before, but they'd always been the giggly type that were cured with a bacon sandwich and a fry up and a nice glass of orange juice the next morning. There was nothing like this. And for some reason, I just couldn't get the fear out of my body. I had to move home and I had to confess to my parents that I'd been taking recreational drugs and drinking too much. I I had to get help for this panic attack. Uh, It was like an ongoing feeling for the whole day. My toes were curled up in the morning. My shoulders were around my ears. I have to admit, it was one of the worst times of my life. My get better goal was to end my panic by going to the pub. It sounds ridiculous now I think about it, but all I wanted to do was have a pint of beer to prove that I was in recovery. I can't believe that that was my sort of attitude again I just thought drinking was the only me I knew and it's very hard to change the only person you know I was just a party girl with no no off switch I just blamed it all on drugs I never took drugs again 
But drinking, why would anyone stop that? I mean, how was I supposed to have fun if I wasn't drinking? It just wasn't in my on my radar. So after the turmoil of the year of hell, I decided I need a change of scenery. So I went travelling and I didn't come home for about 10 years. Home reminded me of panic and drugs and that awful, terrible time. So I ran away to a new life. But of course, I didn't run away from the addiction. That was with me for the ride. Travelling allowed me to drink every day. And if I made a fool of myself, I could do a runner and head to another destination. It was a free pass to get sloshed in every hot, steamy city around the world. This led to a lot of promiscuity. When I was drunk, my guard was down. I did things a sober person would never do. I put myself at risk often. And when I wasn't being led down dark pathways to unknown bungalows by a man I'd only met an hour before, I was drinking in a bar. I never stopped to question what I was doing, whether it was okay. Each one-night stand chipped away at my self-esteem, which led to a very unhealthy pattern of drinking and sleeping around. It was a circle of misadventure. Each awful decision made me feel more down on myself, which in turn perpetuated more bad behaviour. And somewhere, I fell between the lines. I forgot I had a choice and I forgot that I mattered again. I used to lie in bed feeling alone the following morning after some weird guy had left my room. Is this all I'm worth? But the only way to deal with any strong emotions was to drink through them. So I carried on. There are a few short-term loves and a few identifiable rashes. Most of my rendezvous were very short-lived. Not memorable at all. Partly because I was in a blackout and partly because I was so ashamed and wanted to forget the awful scenario. My drinking led to a lot of weird situations. On New Year's Eve in 1999, the Millennium Night, I blew off one of my fingers with a firework. It was a huge wake-up call that I decided to ignore. Drinking had caused me to make very poor decisions again, but instead of taking heed, I just added to my repertoire of funny stories, stuff to keep others entertained. I ended up living in Thailand for five years. I ran bars. Of course I did. (laughs) And taught English and lived very content, half-pickled lifestyle. Owning bars meant I just helped myself when I wanted. It was a disaster waiting to happen. Then, unfortunately, a real disaster did happen. The tsunami. It took my bar, nearly my boyfriend at the time. I was away visiting family when it happened and missed it by a day. I flew back into the disaster zone and eventually, after searching for days, found my boyfriend and a bottle of vodka planted in the sand. The devastation that I witnessed in those few weeks sank away after a few sips, and I sat in the sand and watched a single flip-flops washed up at my feet. I never dealt with the trauma I saw during that period, and I wonder if that experience made the void a little bigger. I drank away the tsunami like I drank everything away. I travelled for a few more years. I drank coconut wine in India, rice wine in Nepal and big steins of beer in Europe. I lived in France for a bit and worked in the markets where I was met by the red wine man at 6am each morning. Let's just say I can't remember much about that time. There were a lot of croissants and a lot of glasses of red wine. My drinking led me into one bad relationship after another. I met men in bars and if they liked me, that was enough. I liked them back. These encounters gave me stories but there was one story I would have preferred to have not been real. I met a guy and got in too deep before I realised he was manipulating me. Alcohol blurred my vision. It's hard to see out when you're in the darkness. Love meant I stayed with someone when I should have left, and my low self-esteem got me into trouble. 
It ended on the side of a road with me in tears and a black eye. I was mortified that I'd got into such a toxic affair. I don't blame Blues, I blame him. But alcohol did play a part. Something had to change. I knew I wanted children, even though I was this wild party girl with VIP passes and, you know, the best tickets to the best events. I really had a a vision of settling down one day. When I was 33, I decided to move to Australia and go and find someone. I just wanted someone kind. I just wanted someone to be nice for me for once. My previous boyfriends had all been travelling types, with too much tie-dye, no shoes and jobs, tattoos and dreadlocks. Nothing against dreadlocks. I decided I wanted something else. I dreamt about meeting that kind man, someone who just liked me for me. I met my husband pretty soon after I arrived. I'd known him from that weird time at university. We'd just been mates then, but now I could see something else within him. We married very quickly. Within six weeks, we were engaged. I slowed down my drinking with him because I wanted a proper relationship. I recognised that my behaviour was was causing things to fall apart. I was so happy to have met someone who liked me not for my drinking, not for being the party girl. He made me grow up, I guess. We were engaged and I was pregnant very, very quickly, within the year. He never noticed that my boozing was out of control because my drinking was so bloody clever. It was always social, diluted by the crowd, soaked up into drinking culture. I never drank alone, never before 6am. It was always celebratory, and I never considered it being dysfunctional. So it went under the radar again, because I never stood out as having a problem. I was three months pregnant at my wedding. It was my first ever social, sober social event. I experienced a little window of sobriety, and honestly, it really caught my attention. I liked it. I liked being me, me without booze. I took note, but it's very difficult to change something that it feel like represents you entirely. My drinking sat dormant until my baby was six weeks old. No one had warned me how hard the transition from party girl to stay-at-home mum would be. I went from going out and being free and independent to being stuck at home alone with a crying baby. It caused the need within me to rise the need to numb out the mundaneity, a need to escape and reward myself. I was the perfect candidate for a bit of mummy wine time. I remember the first time I went out after the baby was born like it was yesterday. It took more organisation than nights out used to, but I did it. I had a group of good new mummy friends, and of course the only way I knew how to impress people was to drink lots. I remember being up at the bar five times while everyone else was just sipping at a cold glass of wine. I couldn't understand why I was so hammered and they were still chatting about baby sleep times. I had to be dumped in a taxi with my handbag as a puke bucket. When I woke up the next morning, I was hungover. I heard my baby crying and I couldn't go to him. Something elbowed its way into my hangovers that day. The anxiety I'd felt in my early twenties had risen its ugly head. The shame and guilt of not being available for my child caused me to have a full-blown panic attack. I hated myself for failing, but I didn't know another way of being. So you can imagine what I did. I tried to combine parenting and drinking. I poured myself goldfish bowl glasses of wine in the evenings to wind down. 
When I was stressed, I went to the pub with mates and drowned out the overwhelming feelings of motherhood. But every time I drank, the anxiety came back. I had to listen to my husband as he packed the pram, as he took my child out for the day in the room beyond my hangover. Waves of fear rolled out of my rolled over my body as, as I heard him leave. I felt terrible guilt again that he was left and I was missing out on a day with my child, my precious baby that I loved so much. I couldn't understand it. Questions started to fall into my mind. Why am I doing this to myself? Why am I missing out on a day with my baby? I'm sad to say I repeated this negative drinking pattern for four years until I got pregnant again. I had another perfect window of me without alcohol. I loved it and I promised to do better after the baby. I had a girl, Nellie. She was tiny with bright blue eyes and she didn't feed very well. I got tired, never sleeping, and I had a four-year-old and everything just got on top of me. I was drowning under the washing. I just couldn't keep up. After six weeks, I found myself walking into a bar and waving a note at a barman. I got so drunk that I couldn't remember getting home. I felt terrible the next morning. I had two children to look after and I couldn't move my head. Oh, it was awful. The fear and self-hatred pulsing through every pore in my body. I decided enough was enough. It had been a long time coming, but drinking was not working for me anymore. I plodded into the lounge and told my husband that I was failing at moderation. I mean, I'd tried everything. You know, water between wines, dry July. I had tried, but nothing worked. Moderation was a total myth for me. All it meant was being present for my first two sips and then slipping into a blackout and dancing on a speaker all night. I mean, I just could not control my drinking. I guess, Jean, this is where my sober story begins. I, that was the day that I really decided to seek professional help. I realised that I wasn't able to cure my drinking problem on my own. And even though I didn't feel like an alcoholic, I knew that I had a problem. I wasn't really ready to admit that to myself, but a lot can happen in 12 weeks of therapy. And by the end of it, I realised that perhaps, yes, I did sit somewhere on that vast alcohol spectrum. I think I ignored my wake-up calls for a very, very long time. I mean, I have one sitting on my finger with my, my stumpy millennium stump, which I can't believe I've, I ignored that. That was alcohol-related. Poor decisions kept happening throughout my life. But my children were the wake-up call I couldn't ignore. I loved them so much. And alcohol was really affecting my mental health. So I had to reach out. I think I'd been stuck a lot of my life in somewhere I like to call a Pinot Gris purgatory. I was there for a long time thinking I wasn't worthy enough for help, although my problem wasn't bad enough to get professional help. And actually, I needed help identifying what my problem actually was. I think a lot of people get stuck here. It's somewhere I talk about often. I think no matter how big or small the problem feels, it actually is worthy of help. And by getting therapy, I learned there is a huge spectrum of alcoholism and I do sit on it somewhere. I might not be alcoholic enough for some people or too alcoholic for others, but I'm definitely on there. In therapy, I learned why I was a heavy drinker. 
about the void filling and the people pleasing. I learned how to take responsibility for my drinking and not blaming others. When I really focused on my drinking, I could say, yes, I grew up in a party atmosphere or Ladek culture. I was always blaming my environment or culture or that someone had twisted my elbow. But actually, it was always my hand reaching out for a drink. It was always my hand opening the fridge and leaning in for that cold bottle of Chardonnay. So I had to take responsibility for myself for the first time. And luckily, I married a man who was so accepting of me that he was the one who was handing me the paracetamol and, you know, talking me down from panic attacks every Sunday morning. So he just supported me and and walked, you know, shoulder to shoulder next to me throughout this whole process. What I really learned was that it is possible for a person to change. I rebuilt myself. I took out the bad bits that I didn't want anymore, want anymore. And I was able to start again. I knew that alcohol was no longer going to be a part of this. My panic attacks had been my body screaming out for help. And my children meant I acted on it. So I said goodbye to the people pleaser and just learned to be me. I had to learn how to be kind to myself and be confronted with the fact that I wasn't drinking to have fun. I was drinking to numb out stuff like being a mum, being bullied at school, the tsunami, the terrible relationships, the promiscuity. I was just numbing it all out instead of dealing with it. And actually, when I unpickled, I could see my life so much more clearly. And I started to like myself again, which I don't think I've done for a really long time. My life now, alcohol free, is so much better. I think I'm on over 1,200 days. My sobriety isn't perfect. I'm still a terrible mother sometimes. I think last week I sent my two-year-old to daycare with a pound of cheese in his lunchbox. Instead of his lunch, I think I got a phone call. I just said to the lady, he likes cheese. (laughs) I do stupid things and I scream too much and I shout too much. And I, you know, I'm not the best mother in the world. But and even though sometimes I want to run down the road and shove my head in a drain and just not be there. I am available. That's what sober means to me. It means I'm present in their lives instead of hiding with a hangover, feeling that awful anxiety anymore. So, no, I'm not a perfect mum. But sobriety means I'm a happier one. My children never saw me drinking. They won't know me how I was. And of that, I'm really, really proud. So sobriety is my gift to them. And I hope it ripples within my family for generations to come. I hope so, Jean. But of course, they have to call me in 18 years when hopefully I'm not bailing them out of a jail cell. (laughs) We'll see how that goes. I actually had another baby in my sobriety at 42, which was a really lovely surprise. I started writing and loving sober life. I run a sober group and do podcasts and I've written a book. I'm really passionate about this alcohol-free life and and changing the way society treats sober people and normalising the use of alcohol. That's me. That's my sober story, Jean. Oh, thank you so much. Gosh, you're a great storyteller. I love that you um, you don't necessarily paint a picture of perfection in recovery, but of authenticity. And I think that's important to remember, especially for people that are considering sobriety, that we're not holding it up as some elite way to live. 
It's very no. raw and very real. <laughs> yeah, it's very raw and very real. And it is a whole other journey. I was very surprised by it. I thought giving up drinking was just about giving up drinking. I thought that was it. But actually, it's taken me, you know, probably two years into my sobriety to start this sort of self-love journey. I know it sounds cheesy. And I never thought it'd be something I'd ever say. Because um, I've always sort of laughed at those sort of things. But when your brain and the cogs of your brain start working again you realize that you you've missed out on a lot and that you have been a bit horrible to yourself all these years and you do start to learn how to like yourself again which is a really wonderful thing it's not always easy because you have to come to terms with a lot of the mistakes you've made and all all those sort of things but but it is enlightening i would say you know one thing that really surprised me when i got sober is it comes back to what you just said and that is that i thought i was just going to fix the drinking i thought the rest of my life was fine mm-hmm. i didn't realize that the drinking was a symptom that something really wasn't fine and the things that i ended up needing to address i didn't realize were changeable i didn't i didn't realize it was an option to like myself or to think differently about myself because i really thought that my ideas were true. Did you have to revisit that? Were you able to unpack the way that you saw the world as being a changeable, malleable thing? Yeah, I was so surprised by that, as you say. I mean, that's what therapy is, I guess. It's like you you have a pack of cards and you lay them on the table and you pick out the ones that you like and you throw away the ones that you hate. And I think for me, one of the really interesting lessons was that I was able to sort of tear myself down like a dilapidated old house and then, you know, build a solid foundation and rebuild, as it were, and really like put the things in the house that I wanted to keep. And that was a really interesting journey for me, because as you say, I didn't know that I could be happier I didn't know that I didn't have to drown myself out. And I didn't know that you didn't have to drink to have fun. And for me, redefining all of those things has been part of this sobriety journey and learning how to to grow. I I thought I was very stunted. I, I would have stayed stunted. I think that's what alcohol does. It dumbs you down and it stunts your growth. And I remember saying, I can't remember who said it, but it's something about you not growing from the moment that you start drinking. So for me, when I turned 40 and decided to address my drinking habit, which is a long time coming, I think I was still that 14-year-old girl. My my behavior was very immature a lot of the time. You know, stumbling stumbling around a nightclub dance floor with a, in a feeding bra. <laughs> you know, it's not actually a good look, dribbling over <laughs> bouncers <laughs> when I was 40 years old. It actually wasn't good. And I didn't realize that until I was out of it. So it's definitely like a self-reflection. You have to do that whole journey to be able to get to the other side and to get to the point where you can start enjoying your sobriety. I think sometimes when we define ourselves as the life of the party or fun with a capital, you know, all caps, F-U-N, I am a fun person. I'm having a fun life. Uh, it's really quite a lazy way to socialize, isn't it? I mean, it, you said that it was your way to make friends, but it's also a way to keep people at arm's length. Gosh, yes, I've never thought about that. <laughs> that is very true. I mean, because I just became, instead of me making stronger friendships, when I look back on it, I was actually just there to entertain everybody else. So I'm sure nights out were fun with me because it is funny seeing somebody rolling around, you know, on the floor with their 
legs flying in the air like a dead fly everybody else was having a good time because they had me there to entertain them whereas really I was the butt of the joke a lot of the time I mean my friends probably wouldn't admit that but like they knew they were going to have a good night if they went out with me because I was always going to be the most plastered and I was always going to have some brilliant stories the next day but I guess I wasn't really making any great connections so I totally (laughs) agree with that Also, I feel sometimes people like to socialize with someone who's going to be the biggest disaster in the room because it gives them some cover for their own mistakes. Exactly. I mean, that's why I guess I didn't like having any sober people around me when I was drinking because I didn't want, if I couldn't remember my night, I didn't want anyone else to because my behavior was so bad. So people are less drunk than you. It's almost like they have a one up. So yeah, everyone always had a one up on me, I think. (laughs) Okay. Well, the other word for that, I guess, would be vulnerability, right? Do you think that you just, it it was just so vulnerable to be socialized with people who didn't drink because they weren't playing the same game as you, right? They had an advantage. Exactly. And my attitude towards that was to shun those people and berate them. I mean, I regret that now. That's a huge regret of mine was to be unkind to people who didn't drink. Um, because I, I guess I didn't understand them and probably I secretly wanted to be them. I mean, how could somebody be in a nightclub or in a bar with a glass of sparkling water? It just seemed absolutely bizarre to me. So instead of saying, oh, wow, look at that person, they can have fun with that alcohol. I was just like, gosh, what is wrong with you? Right. Well, well, envying them on, on another level, as you say. Probably. Yeah, probably. I, I know. I, I, I sort of remember thinking, huh, imagine being so self-assured that you just did what you wanted. I mean, even if I, even if I was ridiculing someone for being different, I also could just couldn't, I wished I could conceive of what it would be like to really stand your own ground and, and live your truth in that way. And imagine that we, we are sad that we thought that because it's always a possibility for everybody is to actually go, no, I can do that. You know, you're in control. And I think that was part of the problem really was that I, I didn't know I was in control. I didn't know I had the steering wheel to my life. I thought I was kind of on this crazy, crazy out of control bus where I was, had my foot on the pedal. I, I just didn't know that, that I was the one that could be the change. So what are your relationships like now that you really are being authentic and whole and you're really aligned with yourself? Are your friendships deeper and your relationships with your, not only your partner, but your siblings and your family? How has, how has your recovery changed those parts of your lives? Well, it was interesting because I, my recovery and, and actually admitting to the fact that I had a problem with alcohol it seemed very, very private at the time. It was just between me and my husband and my kids. And I actually didn't tell anybody for about 18 months. I kept it a secret. I went to social events. I held a beer. I told I was, I was pregnant during that period as well. So obviously that's a good excuse and breastfeeding. I just felt I wasn't ready to tell people that I'd actually quit because I didn't want to confront people with it. And I didn't want them to feel like I was judging them because obviously, you know, I remember what it was like to be around someone sober. So I didn't, I didn't want them. I didn't want to be that sober person. So I actually, yeah, I kept it a secret. And because all my family are partiers, I just didn't want to let them down. It took me a long time to, to come to terms with it myself. But after about 18 months, I, I, I started writing, uh, 
the day I gave up drinking and I gave, I decided to give my mum one of my blog posts to say, look, I didn't have to then be in front of her as, as I told her the terrible news. I gave her a blog post and she phoned me a few hours later and she was in tears and she just said, I didn't realize it had got that bad to the point where I wasn't able to care for my own children. And she was actually very, very proud of me. And I think that's one of the things you realize in sobriety. It very rarely happens that somebody says they're disappointed on you. I think people are more intrigued as to what you've done. And they're just very, very proud of me now. And, you know, it's, it is like a salmon swimming up river sometimes. You are going against the crowd, so it can feel awkward. But my relationships are much, much better. And I find my friends and family all just give me pats on the back. And now I'm very open about my sobriety. I get a lot of lovely emails from people and friends and family. And they're just all very, very proud of me. And, and that's a really wonderful thing. It's a huge surprise. And it makes me, you know, really want to go and travel on this path and share my story more. Because I definitely think seeing someone sober that is still happy and confident and still goes out and still has fun and is still jokey and silly. I think that that does help people because often it's the word sober is related to the word boring. So I'm not boring. I'm I'm sometimes boring, but I'm usually quite fun. So so yeah, it's just changing that mindset, isn't it? And changing the mindset of everybody else. And my relationships are fantastic now. And and if people don't like me, then I really don't care anymore. Because <laughs> that was, I think, a big thing was about being accepted and using alcohol to be accepted in certain environments. And now I'm proud to be the one with the fizzy water. I'm proud to be the one who goes home early with a, you know, with a bar of chocolate and a cup of tea. I that is who I am now. And I don't mind telling you all these stories about me because that that sort of person, that drinking person, it's not who I am. It does not represent me. That is kind of a mad, banshee version of myself. I'm not that drunk person. I'm a very different person to that. I'm much more wholesome, believe it or not, which is a really an- another surprise. And And I enjoy things that don't involve me pouring a toxic liquid down my body now. So... So, yeah, I'm much, much happier. My relationships are much, much better. I must pause in our discussion and just remark on the similarities in our story. So you and I are talking for the first time today. And I um, also started writing on my first day of sobriety. And I also um, am missing a finger. What? You're joking. There's no good story for it. It's from a childhood accident, but I'm I'm missing a finger and Stump Stumpy Sisters. <laughs> and um oh what was the other there were so many things you said or I thought, oh my gosh, this is my story. This is this is me as well. I also was really private. I, I got sober in secret as well. And it was um a year and a half or two years before I told people that that I, well, before I even, you know, on my blog, shed my anonymity and decided to step forward. I want to ask you about this. So what made you decide to um, start telling your story, start owning your story? How did that pivot for you? That's a big change. Yeah, because when I decided to quit after I'd gone through therapy, I felt very, very alone. I didn't realize there were these, I suppose the word keeps coming up, doesn't it? These gray area drinkers. I didn't realize that 
there were others like me. So I spent 18 months feeling very, very alone and not reaching out, not talking to anyone about it because I just felt that it was not normal Um, because I felt like you had to be extreme to deserve help. I thought you needed to be, you know, with a whiskey bottle in the gutter, as they say, like, and I wasn't that. So talking about it seemed uncomfortable. It wasn't until I remember going to the library thinking, gosh, I really want to read something about this and asking very quietly to the librarian, you know, have you got a book about alcoholism? And she said, what, botulism? I was like, no, <laughs> alcoholism. And I had to say even louder. And I remember the, sort of the whole library going, hush. Anyway, <laughs> she handed me, she handed me Sober Curious by Ruby Warrington. And it was 18 months into my sobriety. And then suddenly there I was, you know, I could identify myself within those pages. I soaked up the book within a couple of hours. And at last, I mean, I'd found my community. I didn't know that I was a sober, curious person. I didn't know those questions I was asking in my head every Sunday morning meant that I was sober, curious. So that was a massive change for me. And then from that moment on, I mean, I'd started writing because in in my first pregnancy, actually, I I wrote a series of children's books. I thought the hormones, the pregnancy hormones were making me want to write. So I wrote. (laughs) But actually, I think it was the lack of alcohol in my body during my pregnancies. So it happened again when I gave up drinking. It was nothing to do with hormones. It was lack of alcohol. And for some reason, my brain started working and I wanted to write it all down. And that turned into my blog, which I wasn't brave enough to to write until after I'd read Sober Curious. And I thought, actually, I've got something to say about this because I felt alone for all that time. And there is this gray area and I am part of it. And I feel like my story is going to resonate with so many people, especially women, especially mums that are struggling in that place, in that in that void. I like to call it like a, a, a area between a joke and a punchline. There's kind of like this silence, like this sort of place where you get stuck. And I mean, sobriety can be like a never ending tumbleweed moment. I do say that a lot. It's kind of like this this awkward space where you don't know who you are and you're not sure who you're becoming. Um, so yeah, I started writing about it and that became my blog and I've written a book about it and I just love being overexposed. <laughs> overexposed. <laughs> and your book, you, you've written a memoir and I can see why, my goodness, you've got, uh, a lot of, of stories to tell, um, both before and after you quit drinking. So I know it's going to be a great read and that is to be released sometime in the future, right? I hope so. Uh, I'd hope to get it published this year, but looking for a publisher and yeah, it's all been edited. I've actually got some girls that have read it. Five of my friends are coming around to have dips and nibbles on Friday to, to like have a chat about it and see what extra work needs to be done. So that's exciting and nerve wracking at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's baby number four. <laughs> yeah, it totally is. <laughs> the word reinvention, a friend said to me, oh, you've just reinvented yourself so many times. And I really bristle at that word because to me, from the outside, it may look like a reinvention, but from the inside, it really feels like a rediscovery or redefining of what's already there. How does it feel to you as a sober woman and defining your truth 
Did you feel like you were getting to know yourself? Were there things that surprised you about yourself or are you bringing forward parts that you always knew were there? I think I always thought that my story was funny. And that was always my personality was to make sure everything was funny. And after a while being, after being sober for a year or so, I realized that it wasn't funny. And actually it was a little bit sad. And that was a real, that really hit home with me because I mean, making a joke out of everything your entire life, it doesn't lead you anywhere. Whereas when I really pinpointed the problems and where I'd been going wrong, you know, with the promiscuity and abandoning myself and all of these things that I kept doing to myself, which I thought were normal, that I normalized within my environments. It wasn't until I was over the other side of them that I thought, actually, no, that's not okay. And I think when you realize that, it causes repercussions. It causes you to, to rethink yourself. And I think sobriety in that sense can be like a rebirth because you know where you've gone wrong and you can move forward from that point. So it's almost like, right, you decide that is not who I want to be anymore and I'm going to be someone else. And you, and you give yourself the opportunity to change. And I would never, ever have done that. I would have never have grown as a human being if I had, if I had stayed drinking like I was. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I wrote down as you were telling your story is that even with a lighthearted approach towards the past and the present, um, you still, you don't shy away from hard truths and humor can be a weapon or it can be a tool. Do you find that you have to work to stay on the right side of it? Have you had to soften your humor, abandon sarcasm, or become more introspective about the way that humor comes into your head and your heart? I think it's a real fine balance. I think the way my message is going to be out there is with my humor. So that is really a tool in that sense. But of course, you don't want to offend anyone. Like I I do probably have too many toilet jokes in my book, which I might have to edit out. (laughs) But I I think humor is definitely a tool. I don't think it's I don't think it could hold me back. It's definitely how I've always communicated with people. And I think that's why it makes those poignant moments so real is because I'm really balancing the two and people expect the humor from me. And then when they get hit with, the, you know, a bit of sadness or a bit of trauma, it's like, oh, actually, people do act at a certain level and there is a deeper part of them in everybody. So it's not like I'm happy all the time. It's like, actually, there are some terrible things that have happened and I'm willing to share them. So as long as I keep that balance, I think in the podcast that we recorded this week, sometimes that balance goes a bit askew because I get overexcited about telling some awful story that I've told. And sometimes I sort of need to rein myself back in. But I definitely think my humour is going to be the way that I, that I communicate my story to people. Well, it's so nice to remind people, as you say, that sober doesn't mean somber. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) When uh, in my online groups, a lot of times people will post 
a before and after picture, you know, like that. Yeah. And and it's always in the eyes. The sober eyes have a twinkle and a clarity that is so much more engaging than that dull, lifeless look in the eyes of someone who's withered inside. It's and, so funny you mentioned that because yeah. I... I got somebody sent me a photo recently it was on a whatsapp message a group of old friends and they were sending old photos and one of them was me standing over a toilet with I mean I was sort of half dressed for some reason I had a monkey sewn onto my shirt like a little teddy I don't know why absolutely no (laughs) idea (laughs) I was obviously a crazy night out but I I had no recollection of it but my eyes, Jean, it was like a great white shark. You know, that blackness. Mm-hmm. It was like mm-hmm. the, there was nobody home. It was mm-hmm. like a, it was horrible to look at. And it actually made me really upset. Usually I would have laughed at old pictures. But that one, I could see that I had totally lost myself in that photograph. It was not a human. It was like my soul had been removed. And now when I look at photos of myself, and I'm looking at a photo of you actually now on my Zoom screen, and your eyes are so sparkly and bright. It's so lovely to see. Mm, yeah, I think we're really becoming the women we were meant to be, you know, our whole authentic selves. And it is a really great gift to ourselves and our families and the people we love. Yeah, I feel like I've booked my kids into a never-ending never- Disney World ticket because like, <laughs> I realize that I've like done this for them. And I you know, I really hope one day that they will say, oh, thanks, mum. You know, like, that was really nice of you to do that. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because I had a therapist tell me when I was fairly early in recovery that it really is one of the greatest things you can do as a parent is to model for children, not just sobriety, but problem solving as a way of life. And that's what I feel like recovery is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Being functional and being present and being capable of caring for them, even if it was one day a week that I was spending in bed with a hangover, me not being there for them, I realised, Jean, that they're when I'm not there, they're not feeling my love. And that's really what it came down to, my sobriety, was that if I'm in a bedroom on my own with huge anxiety and my children are going on about their day, I'm not there to love them and they're not feeling love from me. And actually, really, that was the point where I had to change because I don't want that. I want my children to feel loved. It's, it's very short-lived, this, you know, when they're young like my kids are. And I don't want to be passed out in, in bed, like, feeling horrible. I want to be there for them and I want them to remember it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel that in my bones. Before you go, I want you to talk about recovery in Australia. I'm so glad for everyone that is recovering out loud in Australia because I feel like there's such a need and you're really up against quite an alcogenic culture. Can you talk about how your message is being received and the impact that you're having? Well, I'm trying. I, I, I'm I trying to get my word out there, I suppose. Um, it is hard um, because Australia has a strong drinking culture like England, like everywhere in the world. So I am going against the grain a little bit, um, which, which puts me sometimes in focus. I mean, I have had some horrible messages of people on, you know, on people on Facebook or Instagram occasionally 
people just are offended by me because I use the word alcoholic quite a lot. And for some people, their mind just jumps. If I say mother and alcoholic together, which I do all the time, their their minds jump to an image of a woman passed out on the floor, covered in sick with a baby crawling over her, which isn't the case. And that's the kind of rumour I'm trying to dispel with talking about this area of drinking is that it isn't that bad and it doesn't have to get that bad for you to do, be deserving of help. Being sober is like being different. You are going to be socialising and, and going to parties and things with friends where people aren't going to understand what you're doing. But that's the amazing thing that sobriety teaches you is to just be yourself. And now in those situations, I'm very, very happy to talk to people about it. And I'm as, you, as I said before, I'm very, very proud to be the one. But putting it out there, you know, some days I, I am sort of rocking backwards and forwards in bed going, oh, God, what's people are going to think about me? Because, you know, I do tell some awful stories from my past and I do, I am probably overly honest about it all. But, I mean, what can I do? That That's who I am and that's what's happened to me and, and, and it, it makes me who I am today. So I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> well, I thank you for shining a light and showing the way and telling your story and standing in your truth. It's important and we're grateful. Thank you, Jean. I love everything you're doing and I really appreciate you having me on. I've really enjoyed telling the, the full story. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Before you go, tell our listeners how can they find you, connect with you, read your blog, join your group, all the things. So my website is drunkmummysobermummy.com. My new podcast is being released this week and that is Sober Awkward. You'll be able to find that on all your podcast apps, Spotify and iTunes and everything. Um, I'm recording that with my friend Lucy, who runs a single mums network here in Australia. Um, I also have a little sober social group here on the Sunshine Coast, which is called the Sober Social for Sober Curious Women. You could anyone around the world can join that on the Facebook group, but here in the Sunshine Coast, we have a few little meetup where we go for picnics and dinners and things and chat about our sober journeys. And yeah, I've written a book called A Thousand Wasted Sundays, which I would love to be published at some stage, but we'll see about that. That's a whole other journey in itself. So yeah, I'm trying to get the message out here in Australia. So any help or any shares would be hugely appreciated. Well, thank you so much. And listeners, you have heard the call. If you can share Victoria's uh, information with someone you know in Australia, that's great. Or make sure that you um, check out her podcast and like and comment on it on your podcast app. That helps too. That's a huge help in getting the word yeah. out there. And while you're doing that, be sure and do the same for the bubble hour so that we can reach more people as well. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Also, also Jean, you can follow me on Instagram, which is at drunk mummy, sober mummy. Sorry, I forgot that one. Oh yeah. That's important too. All right. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being here. And listeners, thank you for being part of the whole bubble hour thing. We wouldn't be doing this without you. That's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me In 
Just want to be free 